harbors arts and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox. On the web at mainboats.com. Hey, this is Zach from the Farewell Drifters, and WERU supports our music, so please call 1-800-643-6273 with your pledge of financial support for Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, streaming and podcasting at WERU.org. Thanks for your support. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for power boats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and around the world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is the uh, call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval with your hosts, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, old rusty anchors, and... Also, two old sailors whose navigational skills are off the chart. Off the chart. Uh, it took a second. Brought, um, the, brought the chart in this morning yeah. that we'll figure in what we're talking about this morning, hopefully. We have a lot to talk about this morning. Our main feature, though, is going to be a fellow you've made contact with. Yeah, really excited this morning. Uh, we're gonna, we like the history on boat talk, and uh, we are going to talk about what went down in Castine in the summer of 1779, and it was called the Penobscot Expedition, also known as the biggest naval disaster in American history up to Pearl Harbor, and it went down right down the road, and there are a lot of great angles to that story and, and uh, lessons to be learned. Uh, well-known novelist Bernard Cornwell, he's responsible uh, for this new novel called The Fort, a novel of the Revolutionary War, and it's all about... Uh, again, Maja Bigwa Deuce, which was Castine in the old <laughs> days. And uh, he is the author of the Sharp novels, among others, and a uh, um, very well-known historical novelist. be talking to him in a few minutes, but we got a couple things we got to get out of the way real quick first. Yep. Uh, well, first, you probably realize that we are in the midst of our funathon here at WERU, and Boat Talk may not make sense, but today we're going to try to make dollars, and we'd like to have you help support this community radio station by giving us a call at 1-800-643-6273. That's the pledge line. Or you can pledge online also at weru.org. Now, we are making a rare personal appearance this weekend, you and me. You, yes, we are. And it's at the Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors show. We are the hosts for the Boatyard Dog Championship, World Championship, yep. Boatyard Dog uh, World Championship Trials, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Yeah, really and looking forward to it. there'll be a Shriners that. parade and a flyover, and they'll be flying wet dogs <laughs> and all kinds of good stuff. 
and we have some tickets for that event. We do have some tickets morning. also, too. That show is going to be happening this weekend on Friday and Saturday from 10 until 6, and also on Sunday from 10 till 4, and they've, um, well, first we need to say that in uh, openness, uh, Main Boats, Homes, and Harbors is an uh, underwriter of Boat Talk and other shows here on Community Radio. Let's also be right up front and, and be open and say that they made us sign a release that says that they can use our likeness and we can never expect any money from it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think Let's be honest about all the details. <laughs> but they have been very kindly giving us uh, three pairs of tickets to give away, and uh, we're going to link those to uh, people who call up and make a pledge at 1-800-643-6273 if you'd like a pair of tickets to go see the Main Boats, Homes, and Harbors show in Rockland this coming weekend and make a pledge of some amount, too. That would be great. 1-800-643-6273. Hopefully you can use those tickets or give them to a friend. Uh, you know, uh, you want to support community radio. That's We like to think is a big reason why something like Boat Talk can happen the way it does is because we have the community radio, so we urge you to support it. We've got to mention a couple of quick news things this morning. The Eastport Boat School, we are huge on this place, have been for years. Yep. We like to thank Chris. Yeah, we like to think we helped save it a few years ago. And then the ultimate salvation came along. This fellow, David Marlowe, he's a boat builder in uh, Taiwan, among other places, summer place in Brooksville. He was going to buy it. This was the sal- This was beyond too good to be true, and guess what? Now it's not true. He's backed out. The town of Eastport has no idea why, and they're left holding the boat school, which uh, loses money um, but is an asset, and what's going to happen next? We'll be talking about that in the future. While we're down to Eastport, um, how about a nod to uh, the coolest boat ride I hear on the coast this summer? There's a new Eastport ferry that goes from Eastport to, to Lubeck. It takes an hour to drive there, but it's not far by the water. You can see it across the water. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this ferry is affordable, and apparently it's very social, and uh, wildlife sightings, and uh, <laughs> it, it's the trip I hear. Eastportferry.com, and that's the... This weekend also, they're having the open boatyard days all up and down the coast here. Uh, several boatyards, including I think probably half a dozen on Mount Desert Island and in the area, are going to be opening their shops on August 15th and 16th from the hours of 10 till 3 both days. Uh, if you'd be interested in seeing a boatyard in your area, just go to mainbuiltboats.com and there's a whole list of the boatyards that are having these open boatyard. Kind of uh, see what they do on the inside of a boatyard kind of day. It's interesting. Yeah, you can visit the way we do. We walk right in, we climb right up on the stage and go, hey, why, why are you doing it that yeah. way? Let me tell you how to do that. <laughs> it's always fun to go visit your buddies at the boatyard. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we are doing Boat Talk this morning again. We hope to be uh, talking about Castine in 1779 for the hour. And we're going to ask you this morning to, uh, we'll, we'll take your calls. If you have something to add to the uh, discussion, we'll be glad to take your call. But I'd like this morning to maybe discourage calls about varnish and leaking boats and stuff. Um, and we have, uh, is that me? No, well, wait, I've got a couple more items yet. All right, sorry, ahead of you. Squeeze in. Um, my wife sent me information from the August 8th New York Times, interesting little article on the uh, the monitor. Remember, they raised the... the uh, sure, Civil the War, uh, yeah. game-changing warship. Yeah. yeah, well, they raised the uh, turret from that about nine years ago, uh, salvaged it, and uh, have been sort of uh, restoring it, and they have have dried it out for temporarily to remove the scale from that 
thing, and it's a little interesting article in the New York Times, August 8th. But there's a sub-story in it that's very interesting, too. I never realized. Guy Erickson, who uh, designed the, um, the monitor, had a partner named Bushnell, who was the money guy. And it turns out that Bushnell apparently was trying to uh, squeeze Erickson out of the scene and take all the credit for the monitor himself. We will talk about how the credit comes down through history this morning. Yeah, yes, we will. That's we, part we, of the we're subject. We're to touch on that again for sure. Yeah. And one final thing in the uh, science department, the, um, for you folks who go onto the web, check out State of the Oceans, an interesting uh, website there where last April world experts from ocean, uh, ocean experts, scientists from all around the world met at uh, Oxford in England and came up with a State of the Oceans report. And uh, do they say they're getting worse, Alan? Uh, they say, I just yes. Gu- I guessed at that. Yep. Yeah. 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 They're uh, saying there's many negative uh, factors happening, and it's the uh, negative factors are, are accelerating. Always bad news. But I think it's interesting that the report doesn't really knock the fishermen that much. They, uh, they say that overfishing is only very, uh, kind of a, just a small part of the fact that the oceans are... Uh, Declining in, in quality, and their their prime um, suggestion is for us to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. There was terrible uh, chemical effects that they're having on the ocean, carbon dioxide. We're already past 350. Can I make a terrible boat chalk joke here? Oh, good. Yep. Yeah, uh, no matter what uh, temperature the ocean is, what's floating around in it, I'm happy to think that it still floats my yacht. Yeah. So yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> State we are doing boat talk this morning. It's uh, on the community radio. Mike Joyce uh, and Alan Sprague. We're boat builders and, and sailors, and we uh, are hoping Giffy Fole will come in at any time. Our our uh, distinguished surveyor, uh, buddy Giffy Fole, but he hasn't quite made it in. If he's driving down, don't speed, Giffy. But when you get here, it'd be great. And hopefully, we have a uh, noted author, Bernard Cornwell, on the phone this morning. Are you there, Bernard? I'm here. Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning. And we find you down in Chatham, Massachusetts this morning on Cape Cod. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Home base. Home base, yeah, at least for the summer. Bernard, we are uh, trying to get you scheduled this morning, and we had some conflicts. You're in, you're an actor as well as a writer. You're in a, you're in a few plays this summer. I mean, I'm in four plays this summer at a, at a summer stock theater in Chatham, and it's, uh, yeah, it's like a, it's my whole summer is gone. <laughs> You also have a boat, don't you? Uh, yeah, I think about... I do. I seem to remember I have one. I mean, I've been, I've been on stage so much that I've hardly seen the poor thing. It's, it's sitting out there in the mooring, but with any luck, I'll be on it this afternoon. Your boat's uh, a little unique. Could you describe it? Well, it, it's a Cornish Crabber, which is a, a fairly well-known British um, boat. She's 24 feet um, on deck, 29 over spars. Um, she's a, a gaff rig topsail cutter. And they're very popular in Britain. I think about uh, the original um, crabbers, which I have one. I think 350 were made, but there's a new one, which I think they've made a lot more of. They're very pretty. People think she's 100 years old, and she's not. It's a uh, plum-stemmed, uh, heavy-built, uh, traditional English, like, say, nor- crabber That's boat. That's right. Yeah, they're based on a, on a, fi- on a fishing boat design. And they're, they're, it, it's, I mean, I sell mine mostly in Nantucket Sound, and it's really not very suitable for Nantucket Sound mm-hmm. because she's built for... You know, the western approaches and the big seas there. Deeper water. Uh, so she's, she's the slowest boat in Nantucket Sound. I'm very <laughs> proud of her. Does that have a plum stem and a bowsprit? Yeah, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. It's how you feel while you're doing it. Absolutely. I, I mean, who wants to get there? I mean, we, you know, we've all been on those voyages where, where after a couple of weeks you see a destination. You think, I don't want to arrive. I want to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to have hobbies. Does uh, being a writer help you as an actor? And, and does... 
being a, uh, acting help you with your writing? Well, certainly being a writer helps with acting. I don't know about the other way around. Um, and that is, there's a sort of a, a connection between acting and writing. I mean, Charles Dickens was an actor, and, and lots of writers have actually sort of, I, I guess, we want to be actors. And so, yeah, there is a connection. Uh, I mean, when you're writing, you hear dialogue in your head. And it's important that you hear it as it's being set, you know, with the intonations and everything. So I suppose that's the, that's the connection. Hmm. You are the author of, uh, I, I could about count four dozen, more or less, uh, novels. Uh, more or less, yeah. Most of them historical novels. There's uh, uh, several sailing novels, which are uh, great thrilling adventures. I recommend highly. But you write about... Um, um, Military uh, history, basically, is your, uh, you know... I think that's fair, yeah. I'm, I'm basically a military history fiction writer, if that's a slightly clumsy title, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, spanning a great deal of time as well in a lot of different uh, armies and battles and, and times. And So, anyway, they say, write, write what you know about. I can't write about flying F-16s. How do you know all this stuff? What do you... Well, I think I rely on the fact that other people don't. <laughs> that is the plan. There um, you go. But uh, well, I, I mean, I, I always had a fascination with the Napoleonic Wars, and so so almost half of the books are about the Napoleonic Wars. And when I grew up, I was an enormous fan. I still am a hornblower. And and I, I can remember thinking, I mean, years ago when I was in my twenties, that that I would love to read the stories about the army as well about the navy and and no one was writing them and and so later on when when life forced me to to find a to, to make a living i thought well why don't you write them so i did um but i mean there's been about four or five guys who've written about the about nelson's navy um obviously patrick o'brien and dudley pope and alexander kent and of course the great c.s forrester but uh, back then uh, no one was writing about the army and you created uh, Sharp the Rifleman was one Sharp of your uh, was yeah. one of your greatest characters. Uh, masterpiece theater is is Dunham and everything. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. I uh, can't tell you how happy I am when you get to the end of the book and you say Sharp will march again, and you're yes. <laughs> well, I think he will. I mean, he hasn't marched for a few years, and I'm getting lots of letters from people saying, you know, what's happened to him. We don't run, don't run out of history, do we? And and uh, so anyway, you know, we don't, and we go on making it too. But there we go. Well, we're going to get to the, uh, you know, uh, now and then tie-ins, I guess. And, and uh, here's the thing, though. You, you uh, use, you know, the field of history as, as your gold mine there, and it's so rich. But uh, we had a fellow on, a novelist, uh, uh, James Nelson. He is uh, right. one of the heirs to Patrick O'Brien, too. So he blurred, is, you yeah. know. He made a great point. We were talking about uh, the Benedict Arnold story with him. He made a great point. He said, history is not math. I mean, I'm a bit being shocked, or is it shocked, surprised? I don't know. I mean, go, going to Saratoga, and you, and you go to that place where the uh, the rebels took the British battery, and in many ways, that's the whole turning point of the whole war. I mean, if that attack had failed, it's quite possible the whole rebellion would have failed. Hmm. And near it is a monument, and the monument simply it says has no name on it. It just says to the greatest soldier of the American Revolution. Well, of course, that is Benedict Arnold. Well, we can't um, brag about that, though. Hardly can we. Well, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. I mean, if Benedict Arnold had not succeeded in taking that battery and getting dreadfully wounded in doing it, uh, the French wouldn't have come into the war. Uh, if the French hadn't come into the war, the Spanish wouldn't, the Dutch wouldn't. Uh, you know, everything changed at that moment, and, and certainly he deserves that monument. 
Um, but it is sort of, a, it, it's a surprise when you see it, just as it's a surprise for Americans if they go to Battersea Parish Church in, in London and see a memorial window to who? To Benedict Arnold, the hero. Right, um, because he did serve well with the British afterwards, and again, it turns... I think he always regretted it. I mean, he, in his will, he asked to be buried in his Patriot uniform, and he's buried in the crypt of Battersea Parish Church in his, in his Patriot uniform. This reflects our Castine story this morning, too, I think, because we're talking about uh, small chances, leadership, and prickly characters. And prickly characters, indeed. Prickly yes. characters, yes. So when uh, James Nelson says history ain't math, what he says is that the... Uh, Pythagorean theorem gets written the same way every time, and it always works. While you can tell the the story of what happened, doesn't matter what happened. It it more matters how the story gets told afterwards. So, I think that's uh, also true. Yeah. Storytelling, boy, you've got a great deal of latitude, and uh, you know, um, you get to mess with the space time continuum a little a little bit too. I think that's a lovely thing. How do you think our you know, we're talking about the revolution and the Constitution and the founders quite a bit nowadays. How do you think our revolutionary literacy is in America in general? Um, the, the, the revolution in America is myth. It's, high, it, it, it's, it's the high ground of American myth. Um, it, 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 in, I mean, to make a really sort of silly statement, American history almost begins with a civil war. And I'm talking about history, not, not about myth or legend. Um, most people actually don't know what happened in the revolution. No. Nope. Um, and they don't actually want to know. And, and that's fine, because, because the myth, the myth of the founding is immensely powerful, and it served the United States incredibly well. But it's a very strange thing. If you think about it, there's, there's been no great movie, novel about the revolution. Wow. Lots and lots about the Civil War. I mean, starting off with Gone with the Wind, and you can keep going through, through, you know, endless books, endless movies. But the Revolution? And there's a reason for that. And the reason is, of course, is the moment you really begin to look at it, um, and if you go and read one of the great historians on it, like Middlecup or so on, you find out that, that what actually happened is very different to what the myth says happened. And, and at that point, it seems to, you know, people would prefer to keep... The myth, and I don't blame them. I think it's such a powerful myth, and it has served this country so well that it should be preserved. Yep. Um, let's stick with politics for a while. Have you seen uh, uh, Newt Gingrich, for instance, has written? Uh, he's got a new uh, Revolutionary War series of Valley Forge, among others. Have you, have you seen that yet? I haven't. No, no. I mean, I, I you know, I'm way behind on my reading of it. The, re the reason I bring him up is uh, it's interesting that he's doing it, and and they were not badly done for what they are, but. He puts, in my, I'm reviewing this thing right now, he puts a layer of patriotic smalts on the top of it that, that kind of gums it up. Um, I think he kind of ruins it by putting uh, nowadays smalts on, on his <laughs> characters. He really does. So that's my verdict anyway. But, but well, again... I think uh, the, truth is, the truth is often more fascinating. I mean, I mean if you, if you, I'm sure, I hope you've seen the musical 1776. I mean, it, it's, it's a terrific musical, and it works because it doesn't actually try and hide the bad bits. Um, you know, it, it works because you see people struggling with a real problem on that stage. And, and in the end, they come to, the, come to what was the right answer, but it was not an easy, easy route to get there. One of our uh, founding principles on Boat Talk is uh, you've got to learn from the mistakes of others because you ain't got time to make all those mistakes yourself. And again, if we don't learn from the lessons of history, if we, if we myth them over, uh, you know, at some peril, I'm, I would just think. Well, I, I don't know. It seems to me we don't learn, do we? 
Um, I mean, the, the lessons of the last 15 years tell us that. Or what's happening right now. I mean, it's just horrible. We uh, should kind of get to the plot of the thing, and we can, ex we can explore this more, but we've got to get to the story itself. And again, very few Americans, I've been pumping this, this uh, little chat we're having up over the last couple weeks and, and talking to everybody I can see, especially veterans at the, at the post office with a hat on. Um, you like your military history, I say? And the guy says, boy, sure do. Never heard of that, he says, and it happened right down the road from his house, okay? And... Uh, so in 1779, the, the American Revolution was kind of puttering along. Things were going sort of okay. Um, the British were pretty much clear of New England. They were, they were hanging out in Newport, Rhode Island, and New York City. But the rest of uh, New England was pretty much clear of the British. Washington was fighting them down to the south there. And uh, so why did they drop a garrison down to Castine, Maine? Well, you're right. I mean, the... the, the the British had completely abandoned New England, as you say, apart from Newport, and they were under siege there. Um, so New England had, had, was now more or less already independent, and it was ruling itself. It had its own government, it had its own taxes, it had all its, you know, the, the, the apparatus of government was already in place. And then suddenly, out of the blue, the British send a small fleet and a small group of, of, of troops to garrison Castine. And this really was out of the blue. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to do. The idea behind it was, well, there were really two ideas. One was that the whole coast of New England was a, was a, a nest of, of privateers. And very fast, very well-armed New England ships are going out and raiding the British cargo boats that were coming down from, from Halifax to New York. So one idea was to establish a base, a naval base at Castine, so the Royal Navy could sort of hunt down these privateers. The second one was a bit more subtle. They wanted to establish a new colony, and they wanted to call it New Ireland. There was already Nova Scotia, New Scotland, and of course there was New England. So this is going to be New Ireland. Okay. And it was going to be a refuge for the loyalists who had been thrown out of those areas that were under the control of the rebels. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people fled from Boston, loyalists, and, and they had nowhere to go. So Castine was going to become a refuge for, for, for loyalists. And there was also, at the back of the mind of... of of the British, they knew they were, that this war was not going well. I mean, they were not just fighting the American rebels. I mean, there was a Spanish army in what is now Louisiana, Texas area. Of course, there was the French army. The Dutch had declared war on them. They were fighting all over the world. They knew this is probably going to be lost. So one of the ideas was to establish an area which they could take to the bargaining table, um, and they could give it up for something else. So there were a whole lot of reasons for sending an expedition to Castine. But in truth, it wasn't done terribly well. They didn't send enough men. They sent about 750 troops and three small ships of war, three sloops, none of which had more than 20 guns. And these were supposed to hold this whole colony of, of New Ireland. So there they were in the summer of 1779, out of the blue, up the Snobscot River, sails 750 redcoats, guarded by these three sloops of war. And again, they're looking for a place to defend. Um, you go down to Castine nowadays, Castine is not on the road to anywhere nowadays, okay? It's kind of a dead end. One of the lovely there. things about it. Yes, it? it is. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, but it's um, the backstory of Castine, uh, the Yacht Club is uh, has four flags on it, and uh, 
it has, Castine has been owned by the Dutch, the French, the English, and the Americans. It's been fought over more than a couple of times. More than a couple of times, yes. I mean, it's obviously a strategic place. It's, it's a great place to make a naval base. Yep, and um, uh, part of the theory there is that the harbor is not really that great a harbor. The prevailing wind here being southwest in the summertime, um, the harbor basically is lined up on a southwest axis there and runs right up the Bagaduce River. And there's a big tide that runs in there, two to five knots. You really have to uh, uh, contend with the current. And uh, you're against the wind there. Now you have a harbor that's easy to get into, not easy to get out of. Which and again, becomes important in what happened in that summer, indeed. It's a defensive, uh, it adds with the defensive uh, possibilities of the place, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Um, but of course, back then there was no state of Maine, as your readers, as your listeners know very well, and it was all part of Massachusetts. Yeah. And uh, although it, what's interesting is if you actually read the letters and the journals of the time, is is that the people who lived in what is now Maine uh, were not at all fond of Boston. They weren't actually fond of being part of Massachusetts. They felt that that, that Boston ignored them. Um, the complaint was they tax us, but they don't spend anything here. I mean, nothing changes. Let's and. Uh, uh, so, so the, when the when the British get there, and and some of some of your listeners won't like this, but it's true, they're actually landing in an area that is known for its loyalist sympathies. The, the Penobscot River, although it does have it does have patriots, and there is a local militia there. Um, most most of the inhabitants are sympathetic to the British. I mean, one of the curious things about the revolution is that, is that I mean, let, let, if you put it very very roughly. About a third of the Americans were pro-British, a third were, were rebels, and a third were sitting on the fence, you know, wishing the whole damn thing would end. I'm sorry, sir. The, uh, no, the way it is was 99% of us were patriotic <laughs> rebels, and, and there was only 1% that were misguided. That's yeah. right, yeah. Haven't yeah. you been to an American junior high school? <laughs> <laughs> no, I missed that one. Yep. So anyway, the British come down here, and uh, they have the governor of Halifax, uh, Brigadier General McLean, a Scottish fella, and uh, Lieutenant or Captain Mowat, who was fairly notorious, Mowat had been sailing this coast for years for the British Navy, and among other things was famous for the burning of Falmouth, now Portland, in right. 1775. These people were uh, well-practiced professionals. Uh, Mowat, in, pr in particular, really knew the area. And so they get to Castine. There's a knobby little hill there you didn't choose for its farmland. You know, you chose because of the harbor and the defense of the hill. And they want to build a fort, so that you know. Uh, but the people in Boston hear about this right away, and yeah, and, and Boston makes a, a, a unilateral decision, which is that we are going to throw them out. Didn't um, talk to George Washington about it. They didn't talk to George Washington. They did not go to the Continental Congress. Um, they decided this was going to be a massive operation, and, and they began to assemble an army, um, which was the, the famed Minutemen. I mean, it was it was not a professional army. Um, the, these were, if you like, the, the, the militia. Um, by this time of the war, though, the, most of the best men are already serving with the, with the uh, Continental Army. Or dead, what, as somebody else said. Right. Or what's left is not yeah. of, the, of, of the greatest caliber. They also assemble the largest fleet that the, the rebels assemble during the, the whole of the revolution. There's over 40 ships. Most of these are transports. But there are 17 or 18 well-armed warships, and among them are three... Continental Navy ships, and this becomes incredibly important to the story. In the, in the, the harbor at Boston at that time, there was the, the Warren, which was a, a very, very fine frigate indeed, um, and it belonged to the Continental Navy, and it obviously made sense to use the Warren. 
she was much bigger than any of the British ships, uh, and she, you know, she's a professional warship. And so they sought permission of the Navy Board in Washington, I mean, sorry, in Boston, and they said, yes, you can have the three continental Navy ships that are in Boston Harbor, and they would lead the fleet. And so the fleet is put under the command of Commodore Dudley Saltonstall, and Saltonstall, of course, has been the villain of the story ever since. And again, a man who knew his business, but hasn't come down in history quite as good as even Mowat, who burned Falmouth, for instance. You know? No, no, I mean, Mowat is a, is, a, is a consummate professional, as is indeed McLean, and this is part of, of, of what goes wrong for the rebel side, which is they're up against a couple of guys who really know their business. And, and McLean especially is, is, is a good guy. Whenever you come across any reference to McLean written by the rebels, they all say he's a nice guy. You know, he, was, he, he treated us honorably. Uh, he, he was a, a good guy. Uh, but he's also a very good professional soldier. He's fought over 19 battles in Europe. He knows what he's doing. And, and McLean, when he builds the fort at Castine, which of course is still there, uh, you know, this is a very experienced man with a good eye for ground. He knows he's in trouble. He knows that the, that, that the Massachusetts is going to send a force against him. Um, he actually doesn't think he can survive, but he'll do his best, and so he sets up a professional defense. He starts digging his fort when the uh, Americans show up in the third week of July, 1779. And again, we're talking, we're doing boat talk this morning, we should mention, at half past the hour. Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, and we're talking to uh, author Bernard Cornwell down in Chatham, Massachusetts this morning. He's author, uh, most recently, of a great novel called The Fort, about Castine in 1779. So the uh, Americans sail up in uh, a fleet of like 37-odd ships, three dozen-odd ships. The British guy sees them coming and says, oh, my, I'm so yeah. sc we're so screwed, you know. Well, they actually, they do more or less say that. Um, and here the story, I mean, the, the, the story, we'll cut it a little bit short. Um, the Americans have a divided command. There's a... a a man called Lovell, who is the, the general in charge. Now, now Lovell is a Massachusetts politician. Uh, his military experience is almost zip. But he is, the, he is the brigadier in charge of the army. And then you have Saltonstall, who is a professional Navy, naval officer, and certainly competent. But something goes very wrong. These two fall out. They, they, in, by the end of this thing, they're not talking to each other. You know, I mean, this is absolutely hopeless. I mean, you, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to do a, a, an amphibious operation, and, and the army's leader is not talking to the navy's leader. Um, more, more parallels to <laughs> again. Uh, but, but you know, the rebels finally de decide after some faffing about that they're going to land on the on the, the peninsula at Castine, and they do, and it's a brilliant operation. They they come in at dawn. Um, they send the, their guys in in longboats. The British have got troops up on the heights. If anybody who knows Castine is Dice's head and there's that incredibly steep cliff, it's almost impossible to climb that cliff with a, with a gun in your hands. You have to sling your musket and use your hands to pull yourself up. And all the time you've got redcoats shooting at you from the top. The Americans luckily do have over 220 Marines. And these are without doubt the best troops on the American side and they take the right wing. But not just the Marines, the militia too, they get to the top and they drive the British off. And the British retreat down that hilltop, that long spine, that rocky spine, to the fort, which is not finished. It's so unfinished that one American witness said that a man could jump the wall 
um, carrying, you know, muskets in both hands. You could just sort of run and jump over it. It was, it, it was nowhere near finished. Now, McLean knew this, and he sees his guys belting back from the woodland. And he stands and watches the Americans appear at the edge of the trees. And he later told an American, he said, well, I had my hand on the flag ready to pull it down in surrender. But I thought I'd give them two or three shots for honor's sake only before I actually surrendered. So he fired a couple of shots from the fort. And to his astonishment, the Americans gave up the attack. They just stopped. And, and at that point, everything starts to go wrong. McLean also said that every day that the Americans delay is worth a thousand men to me. That's right. And the day they should... Every day he's, he's digging his ditch deeper, he's raising his wall, he's, and Mowat, who is incredibly efficient, is bringing guns ashore from the ships to add more and more guns to the fort. So the fort becomes more and more formidable with every day that passes. And with every day that passes, Lovell and Sultanstall fall out. And what they're really falling out about, the big row, is... Lovell doesn't think he can attack the fort at Castine unless Saltonstall takes his ships into the harbor and attacks the, Brit the three British ships. Uh, Lovell thinks there's absolutely no point in going into that harbor for the reasons that you said, I and mean, he called it that damned hole. He said, I'm not taking my ships into that damned hole. Because he knows that once he's in the harbor, it's going to be very difficult to get out. And once he's in that harbor, of course, the guns of the fort are going to be firing down into his ships. So Saltonstall won't go into the harbor. Lovell won't attack unless he goes into the harbor. And Saltonstall won't attack unless Lovell agrees to attack at the same time. So, you know, it, it, it's just ludicrous. Instead of them just sitting down, working this whole thing out, they just fall out. In the end, as I said, they're not even talking to each other. Uh, other people have to carry messages between them, and nothing happens. For we, three weeks, nothing happens. We should also mention, we're talking about the leaders there, the troops themselves from uh, General Lovell's council minutes on uh, August 11th. He says, there is a great want of discipline and subordination. Many of the officers being so exceedingly slack in their duty, the soldiers so adverse to the service, and the wood in which we are camped so very thick that on an alarm or any special occasion, nearly one-fourth part of the army are skulked out of the way or concealed. And the boys just cold, weren't fierce. You know, those, those men were dragged off their farms in the summertime, and they didn't want to go down there and do that. And, and according to one very good witness on the American side, uh, only about a third of them were fit enough to fight anyway. Um, they, they hoped to take over 1,500 men. They got far fewer than that. I mean, they didn't even get 1,000. And it's a sort of rule of thumb that if you're going to attack a position, you should outnumber the defenders by about three to one. Well, they simply don't. I mean, certainly Saltonstall stuff. I mean, the ships outnumber the British ships by far more than that. I mean, counting if you just count the number of cannons on the warships, it's about ten to one. But on land, no. But they do have these marines. But by this, because the marines are under Saltonstall's command, and tragically for the Americans, the, the leader of the marines, a, a, a splendid man, um, was killed on the, the, the amphibious landing. So, you know, all, everything that can go wrong for the Americans goes wrong. Everything that could go right for the British goes right. Although, in truth, all that McLean has to do is sit tight. He, he really doesn't have to do anything very much. Uh, he does send out patrols, and once he realizes that the morale of the rebels is, is rock bottom, he sends out more and more patrols just to harass them and, and, and just to keep them in a very depressed state. Uh, but other than that, he just has to go on building the walls of the fort, strengthening the fort, 
and of course waiting for relief. And the Americans, the theme of the whole uh, Penobscot expedition is they dither and diddle. They, they spend a couple of also, days... After a couple of weeks, they realize that they can't do it. Um, Lovell is a hopeless... I mean, you have to blame Lovell for the morale of his men, because he simply doesn't offer leadership. <laughs> and you also have to blame him for the fact that he's simply making no real effort to get along with Sultan Storm. Um, but then he decides, okay, what we need is we need real troops. And they send for a regiment from the Continental Army. I mean, they, they swallow their pride. Massachusetts understands that they can't do this on their own. And so they ask for the help of the Continental Army. And a very fine regiment, Jackson's regiment, that was part of the uh, um, Continental Army besieging Newport, is dispatched to help them. We also have reinforcements on the way down from uh, down east, uh, some Indians and Colonel John Allen from uh, Machias. But they're not right, going to get the there. Indians were, 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 immensely useful. They're not um, going to get they, there they in time either. They were very good, but, but you know, there were not enough of them. Um, and they suffered disproportionate casualties, as, as the Marines did. Yeah. But not only is, is, of course, Colonel Jackson's regiment coming, and they have to march from Newport to Boston, and once they're at Boston, they'll be put on ships and they'll be sailed down east. Uh, the British are also sending reinforcements. So now it's a race. Will Colonel Jackson's regiment reach Penobscot before a very powerful fleet, which has come from New York before that reaches. Well, we know what happened, of course. Uh, yes, uh, and again, we're talking to author Bernard Cornwell this morning about his novel, The Fort, and uh, the number here at Botox. We do take calls, 1-800-625-9378. I'm sorry, 1-866-625-9378. And we do have somebody on the phone. Let's say hello this morning, see who's there. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Uh, is somebody, we have a caller on the line? Good morning. Uh, morning. You'd like to speak with uh, us and Bernard Cornwell this morning? Yes, Dean Mayhew, Professor of History. Hi, Dean. Good morning, Dean. Professor Ware, Professor Dean Mayhew. Maritime. Yeah, nice. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the little jingle, needless to say, about Paul Revere and his activities up here. We haven't got to Paul Revere yet, but we're I certainly trying that. to. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the cowardly flight of Paul Revere <laughs> in the stormy summer of 79 when the British attacked with ships of the line. He plucked up his silver and stole from sight, ignoring the order to stand and fight. They court-martialed Paul and called him yellow, but history listened to Mr. Longfellow. And again, mm -hmm. uh, part of the great story we haven't got to yet is Paul Revere was there, too. He was oh, the yeah. head of the he American got a artillery. He got a Scotch verdict. He was uh, not effective in his position. It's the only time he fought the British. He was court-martialed twice for cowardice. That's and sure. he still gets to be a great American hero. Again, the theme of uh, how the story gets told and the, the small ironies of history are a beautiful thing. Well, I told, uh, I told Newsweek magazine a number of years ago that if, uh, if uh, Wadsworth had known that he would have a grandson who would immortalize Revere, Revere he would have had himself castrated on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and again, Paul Revere, as the artillery commander, tortured General Wadsworth, whose daughter was just born and was going to be Henry's grandmother, right? Henry's yep. mother. Henry's yep. mother, yes. Yep. And Henry wrote that poem on the eve of the Civil War trying to make a myth. Yep. Um, he was deliberately mythologized in American history, and, and Revere comes out smelling great. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's, 
one of the questions that I, I couldn't answer, I mean, maybe I'd love if the professor could answer it, is, is I don't think there's an answer, is did Peleg Wadsworth ever talk to his grandson about Revere? I mean, uh, Henry was 21 or 22 when his grandfather died. My own feeling is he didn't. Uh, um, I mean, Peleg Wadsworth had many, many exciting stories to tell of the revolution. I mean, not just his escape from British captivity at Castine, but he'd, he'd served with with George Washington. Uh, Washington had an immense admiration for, the, for, for Wadsworth. I mean, I think there were plenty of stories to tell uh, Henry without telling him about the, the, the sort of bad side of things. And undoubtedly, Revere was the bad side. No, I, I wrote a piece for uh, the Revere Museum in Boston, sent it along, and they never did put it on display. They locked it in a safe. They wouldn't destroy it, but at the same time, they wouldn't show it. Uh, again, because our American myths are very important to us. Very now. much so. Paul Revere is a great one, but um, he was kind of a prickly character. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he is a prickly character. I mean, let me just sort of jump back a moment, because what got me interested in this story in the first place is, is not just is not Paul Revere. It was, the, it was the presence at Castine of another man about whom a great poem was written. This is a man called John Moore. Oh, yeah. And John Moore is perhaps the greatest might have been of, the, of, of British military history. Definitely. Um, John Moore, who is, this is his first fight. He's a very young, I think he's 19 or 18-year-old lieutenant to Castine. He goes on to become a general. He, he's a reformer. Um, and he basically creates the army that Wellington is going to use to defeat Napoleon. And, and in the end, Sir John Moore dies, defeating Marshal Sue at the Battle of Corona in 1809. And... I, he was the guy I was interested in, and then I tripped over Revere, and, and of course Revere rather took over. Uh, and how extraordinary is it that at this little tiny engagement on, on the coast of New England, there should be two men present about whom great and famous poems were written, when I can't think of two men who were present at Waterloo or Gettysburg that had oh. that. Um, but yeah, Revere is prickly, and I, I think Revere had been refused a commission in the Continental Army. Uh, the, the reason seems to be that he wasn't a gentleman enough, and I think that's a huge chip on his shoulder, maybe, maybe a justified chip on his shoulder, and, and that he, he's desperate to fight. He desperately wants to fight. Once he actually gets it to, to war, he finds it horribly uncomfortable, and he doesn't like it, and he's also a terrible subordinate. Well, the beauty of, of him at, at this particular point is that he would, of, would order the chest full of linens, what money he had, and other things of great value to himself, back to Boston. He had the, he had the chest carried from Hamden across to Augusta, and then ultimately down the Kennebec to Booth Bay, and then uh, all the way to Boston. I don't think he would have done that, that for the second hand long, John. is behind his, his, his court-martial and the, and the investigations into his behavior, because he refuses a direct order to help rescue a, a crew from a, a, a from British capture, and and he actually says, "I've got my luggage here. I can't risk my luggage." But and he's he, just he's just not that good at his job, though, because the Americans land on the top of the bluff there at Dice's Head and they haul some cannon up. They're actually a little bit above the British fort, and the British guy then says, "Well, now we're screwed because they're going to batter us to pieces." But Revere's artillery just kind of ineffectually wastes their shots and. And again, there, there's a want of leadership and, and uh, uh, you know... Again, it's there. the want of leadership. And, and it, it's, there was a, um, a Marine officer there um, who had served 
in the artillery in the Continental Army and, and was, was a very efficient um, artillerist. And he gives evidence that, I mean, he basically says, Revere doesn't know his business. Um, and, and that appears to be true, that, that, uh, that the American cannon, which was certainly heavy enough to do severe damage to the fort, simply doesn't. They could, have won, they could have won the battle despite everything else if, like say, he'd been a little better at his job, I'm suggesting. Revere I don't was, think it's uh, fair to blame Revere for the failure of the expedition. I mean, I, it, 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 he didn't help. He didn't help at all. I mean, um, um, usually it's Saltonstall who's blamed. I mean, Saltonstall has been made to carry the whole blame for the failure. I think that, that far more responsibility rests with Lovell. But, but that's just my opinion. I'd love to hear what the professor has to say on that one. Well, needless to say, Lovell beat the rap. Yes. And, and there was a fascinating uh, book Revere got a published called The Massachusetts Conspiracy. Um, and basically, and I find this, this very, very uh, convincing, that, that what the, the state of Massachusetts does after the, the, the failure of the expedition, which, remember, has, has bankrupted them. They put up a million and a half pounds. Oh, I'm probably more than More that. than they have. Probably more than that. And, and, and the state is bankrupt. And what they have to do now is they have to blame somebody else for the failure. And they have this incredibly convenient scapegoat, Dudley Soltenstall, who is a, a continental, a federal officer. And so all the blame is heaped onto Soltenstall. And they then go to the, to the federal government and say, look, you let us down. It's your fault this thing failed. It's your fault that we're bankrupt. So please give us the money. And in the end, that worked. I mean, in the end, they got most of the money back from the federal government. Dudley, yeah, Dudley, curiously enough, uh, died of the bloody flux down in Haiti. Yes. He went from the ridiculous to the sublime. Let's, uh, while we're on the blame game here, I, I kind of take uh, your thesis, Bernard, that uh, Solenstall's not really the goat there. He kind of did know his business, but... As you say, um, John Paul Jones served uh, with Saltonstall. Didn't think too much of him. Nope. If we had a different Navy guy there, let's imagine it was John Paul Jones. He was a prickly character. He was oh, hard to kissed, get along with if he wasn't fighting. You'd have kissed McLean goodbye on day one if John Paul Jones had been there. They would have gone and, and in there, been, taken the British ships, and then the... whole stuff about not being able to get in and out of the harbor, remember, a year later, um, a man called Little, an American captain called Little, sailed into Castine Harbor when it's now under British control, there are far more than three British ships in the harbor, and the fort is now finished. He sails brazenly into the harbor, goes up to a wharf, cuts out a British warship, and sails both. Never heard that one. Excellent. Oh, yeah, that happened. And, you know, I mean, if Little could do it, I think it was in 1780. Dalton Saw could have done it in 79. Mm-hmm. If the British had lost their ships, um, the Americans would be in the harbor there and being fired down on the fort, but they don't even have to go up to Bagadoos. They can go over to Smith Cove, and they're several miles away from the fort and got shelter over there and good water. And, and again, I think that the British position would have been horribly diminished if they had lost the been. ships. Absolutely. Once, once, you're, once you've cleared the three British ships from, from Castine Harbor, then there's, there are endless places you can go where you're out of range of the British guns. And indeed, you know, the Americans did try establishing batteries all around that, that harbor, um, but too little too late. Well, we have a, a, a note from a, from a listener to ask about the British Canal behind Castine. That, I think, was built in the War of 1812. Um, fascinating, this, because uh, the, the, the post of Castine was the very last British post to be yielded back to, to the new United States of America at the end of the 
Revolutionary War. Uh, then when the War of 1812 comes along, the British go straight back to Castine, take the fort back again without any, any particular effort, and they use it as a, a place to... Uh, you, you can pay, pay your customs dues. So if you, if you wanted to go on trade, you're a New Englander and you wanted to go on trading, this was a safe place to trade from because it was under the protection of the Royal Navy, and you paid your customs dues to the, to the British officials. And they made so much money that they started a trust fund, which still runs Dalhousie University in Canada. It's still, um, the whole university still runs off the Castine Customs Trust Fund of the War of 1812. But the, the, the British Canal, I'm pretty certain, was built in the War of 1812. It certainly didn't feature in 1779. This uh, battle, again... Um you know, uh, you look at military history, you go, why'd they do that? Well, it was intensely practical. You do that or the other guys are going to take advantage of you, kill you, or capture you. And so uh, McLean, when he got to Castine, did not put his fort on the highest piece of ground. When the Americans got to Castine, they went, wow, we would have taken the highest piece of ground, so that's why they went up the cliff. McLean wasn't defending the cliff. If he was going to attack, he would have come, come across the neck where the canal now is. Right. Well, as, as Frederick the Great says, if you defend everything, you defend nothing. Yeah. Um, and, and the advantage of his position, or the fort where it is, where you see it today, is, of course, that it commands the whole of the harbor, of, at least the, the inner harbor at Castine, much more than a fort up on the cliff would do. And uh, if you, you know... He put the fort in sort of the best place to dominate the whole of the peninsula and the harbor. It's not the perfect place, but there probably isn't a perfect place. And again, everybody's making different assumptions, and uh, everybody thinks that the other guys have more than they do, and, and that's how things happen now. Um, one more time, we have on the phone this morning uh, author Bernard Cornwell, and uh, he is the author of The Fort. We also have right now uh, Dean Mayhew, a history professor down at Maine Maritime Academy in Castine. We're talking about... And, uh, Bernard, before we run out of time here, I got to, uh, um, you, you get, as a novelist, to play with history. You get to mess, as they say, on Star Trek with the space-time continuum, you know. And you have a lovely scene in there where you um, have General Wadsworth and General McLean meet under a flag of truce. Yeah, that, that, that meet, a meeting took place. It wasn't between Wadsworth and McLean. Um, I wanted them to meet. It was part because when I wrote the book, I became extremely fond of Peleg Wadsworth and, and spent a lot of time reading his letter and anything I, anything I get my hands on by him. He's a most admirable, splendid man, Wadsworth. And, I, and, and they're both nice guys. And I thought this book is not going to work unless they meet. They, they have to meet because although they're enemies, they're going to like each other. And so, I mean... This is the second book I've written set in the American Revolution. You have to be incredibly careful because you're trespassing on, if you like, sacred ground. So you have to get your facts right. Uh, but I thought the reader would forgive me this one piece of invention um, and of, of, of allowing Wadsworth to meet McLean. I don't think, in fact, they ever did meet because although eventually Wadsworth was captured by the British, McLean, I think, had already gone back to Halifax by then. And of course, McLean, I um, mean, Wadsworth goes on to have an exciting escape from Fort George and Castine. Well, um, we're talking, talking this morning of the legacy of the uh, revolution, historical literacy of the revolution and, and echoes nowadays. You have Wadsworth we and McLean speak about tyranny, the, the nature of uh, King George's tyranny, and McLean teases Wadsworth 
that your, your rebellion is being led by wealthy men who are doing really, really well. And what's the tyranny? That they need to be richer? And Wadsworth says, no, we've got to be free to choose. And I'm asking you this morning, is, are you sending us a message across the space-time continuum here about... <laughs> Absolutely not. No, 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 no. no. It's big echoes now. I just hear an echo, big echo here. Well, that may be, but, but no. I mean, I think all I'm trying to do is, in fact, to, to repeat uh, a conversation that was often had during the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 it harks back to Sam Johnson's uh, cutting statement. Why is it that we hear the loudest yelps of liberty from the drivers of slaves? Mm. We have another phone call, so let's go quickly to that, too. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi. Um, I called because I wanted to ask about uh, the privateering that took place along the coast of New England. Um, I wanted to ask Mr. Cornwell. I'm sure he's familiar with the work of Kenneth Roberts. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, I wondered if you'd ever thought of looking into the privateering end of things from, from the uh, American side. It would be, it would be a fascinating thing to look at, because, I mean, there, there, there's so many stories there. Uh, I, I haven't really thought about, about writing that. Um, but it is a, a complete... And, of course, one of the, the ironies of this is that uh, Saltonstall, having been dismissed from the Continental Navy because of what happened to Castine, goes on to become a privateer and makes the richest capture of the whole Revolutionary War. Yeah, exactly. I'm an immensely wealthy man through capturing a, a, a British cargo ship that had, I can't remember what it was carrying now, but it was the richest cargo of the ever captured. Right. So, um, Patrick, the, I'm sorry. Uh, can I make one other comment? Uh, it would appear to me that what we had in this country starting in 1776 was not a revolution. What the French had was a revolution. What we had was simply replacing one group that was controlling a lot of the uh, trade and so forth of the American society with another group that was controlling the trade. It was just domestic rather than foreign. Well, I think it's, 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 uh, it's sometimes it's, it's, it's termed as a civil war. I, mean, I, I, I think it is a revolution. It's one of the great revolutions. And uh, it may not be quite as clear-cut as the myth makes out, but, the, but there's no doubt that, that it is a most successful revolution led by men of enormous intelligence. I mean, if you want to, I think, just stand back and take the widest possible view, there, there is an inevitability about it. I mean, even if, if, if the thing had failed, uh, it couldn't have gone on as it was. I mean, there, there, in the end, you are going to have an independent country, the 13 colonies. Yes. Um, and certainly the British saw it as a, as a well, they saw it as a rebellion. And, and it was enormously shameful to the British when, when, when they lost it. I mean, one of the reasons put forward was that it's the first time we fought a nation that was Protestant. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, that we, we, always, we always beat the Catholics, but, but, you know, we can't beat the Protestants. And, uh, you know, which is, which is wonderfully absurd. Well, yeah, thank you so much. This uh, has been a wonderful show, uh, you guys. Thank you, uh, thank you for calling this morning. Uh, and once again, we're talking to author Bernard Cornwell this morning. Uh, we have a note here, Bernard, asking if the next of the Saxon series, another of a uh, series of novels you're working on, is any time coming out oh, soon. Oh, yeah, I think it's uh, published at the end of the year. Okay, very good. I have All a... the death of kings. Yes, well, before we run out of time, too, I, uh, on Boat Talk, both Mike and I like uh, 
promoting programs that are uh, good for kids, getting kids out in the water, are just beneficial for helping kids get their lives straight. And uh, I'd like you, if you don't mind, giving a little quick talk about the Sharps Children's Fund that you've started. Well, actually, it's not my... I, I didn't start that. Uh, I mean, I, I hope to think I'm a great supporter and a cheerleader. Uh, it was started by the actors of the, um, who were on the Sharp series. And they filmed extensively in India, in Tur- <coughs> Turkey, in the Ukraine. And when they were filming, they discovered so many street children, um, and it, it touched them. And so about a year ago, uh, some of them got together, and they started the Sharps Children's Foundation. Um, and I think their first project is just about getting off the ground now, which is a school in Rajasthan in India. And it's, uh, I think, a wonderful way of, of, of them giving back to the countries where they filmed and where they had a very good time filming. Um, and but it really isn't. It, it, it's really not my initiative. It's, it, it, it does belong to the actors. Mm-hmm. We need also to uh, uh, let people know that you are coming to town. You're going to be in Castine September 1st. It's a Thursday, and going to be giving a talk for the. I'm Castine so glad Library. you knew the date because I couldn't remember which date it was. I knew it was a Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> Good. And again, we have barely, in my mind, done this subject justice this morning. We haven't really been able to play with the retreat up the river, the scene of uh, great confusion of the Americans burning all their boats, seven, uh, four or seven British ships driving three dozen American ships up the river, and uh, Captain Mowat going up to Brewer, uh, where Colonel Brewer lived, who was a Patriot militia guy. And they become friends and drank some wine and stuff together until... Uh, Captain Mowat found out that Colonel Brewer was hiding some American officers and and uh, took out his sword and threatened Brewer, who said, there's your target, sir, I am in your power. And and then they had another glass of wine, and the stories, the history is, is just such a rich feeling. The other thing that I find very touching is how many of the Redcoats go back to Castine after the war and settle there. Hmm. Hmm. Not a bad place to be. And once again, you'll be down here September 1st giving a talk at the Castine Library. I urge anybody that's interested, there'll be a lot more, uh, I believe, to share with the subject. And we thank you so much, Bernard Cornwell, for speaking with us this morning on Boat Talk. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. Thank you to the team, too. All right.